Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. The Second World War raged across the ocean. At home, items like meat and sugar were limited because they were rationed in the hopes of helping the war effort. And as for the children who loved to get lost in the detective stories and superheroes of friend versus foe like the latest adventures of Batman, Superman, or Captain America, well, they had to find alternatives. From 1941 to 1946, comic books were considered non-essential and therefore weren't imported into the country. With many fathers and brothers fighting overseas or sisters serving the army, there was the constant worry about whether they could come home or not. It made a difficult time for children, even more difficult. And a comic book was a wonderful distraction. With no American comics crossing the 49th parallel, some companies saw a unique opportunity. The first and only time that ever happened. It's been called the golden age of Canadian comic books, and it was all too brief. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Before I take you to the birth of the Canadian wartime comics, known previously as the Canadian Whites, an era known for the tales of Johnny Canuck, Nelvana of the Northern Lights, and Brock Windsor, I have to take you back to April 18, 1938, when Action Comics No. 1 hit the stands for the first time, and within its pages was a story co-created by Canadian Joe Shuster, one that gave birth to superheroes. It was the story of Superman. Before it was changed to the Daily Planet, the newspaper Clark Kent worked at was called the Daily Star, named after the Toronto Star where Schuster used to work. Superman's home, Metropolis, was modeled on Toronto's skyline as well. And who can forget this Heritage Minute? And he can lift anything, anything at all. He's that strong. Joe Schuster, will you stop it or you'll miss your train? Now help me find number five. Strong, but by day he's a mild-mannered reporter. Glasses, you know, a secret identity. Honestly, you Canadian kids. He'd be in this cape. A what? A cape. Wearing these blue tights. A hero in tights, really. Here it is. Listen, Lois, this guy is faster than anything, I swear. If you're not fast, you're going to miss your train. That's it. A bullet, a bullet. He's faster? No, he's faster than a speeding bullet. Come on, get on it. No one's going to read a comic strip about a strong man in tights, Joe. It'll never fly. Fly, no. But he can leap over tall buildings. Oh, wow, yeah. See what your cousin Frank says in Toronto. Wait, wait, Lois. I- I've got something for you. Take it. It's a gift. You never know. It might be worth something someday. Is he great or what? Bye-bye, Lois. 
Batman debuted one year later in 1939, then Captain Marvel, or Shazam as he's now called, arrived in 1940. They were followed by Captain America and Wonder Woman in 1941. The world of superheroes was exploding in popularity and Canadians of all ages were ready to snap up the weekly adventures at the store. And amid the rise of superheroes was the start of the Second World War. Suddenly the caped crusaders of the comics were fighting Nazis in Europe in the name of freedom. And with the start of the war though, came rationing. Advertisements encouraged people to cut back on items such as coffee, tea, sugar, butter and meat. They told people, quote, we are at war. It costs a lot to win. It costs everything to lose. And the rationing was twofold. First, it freed up consumer goods for military use and distribution to allied countries in Europe. It also limited consumption and importation of those commodities by merchant ships, which were cut back to bolster the Canadian Navy. The government then made the decision to ban the importation of some items into Canada, including comic books. The hope was that by not bringing in these luxury items, Canadians would put money saved towards victory bonds and thus help the war effort. Limiting imports would also stabilize the Canadian dollar and put more money into the economy for Canadian produced goods during a time when the world's financial markets were on a roller coaster ride because of the war. To that end, the War Exchange Conservation Act was passed on December 6, 1940, and the flow of American comics into Canada stopped completely. For several years, there would be no Tales of Superman in Canada. Ivan Kokmerik is a comic book collector of 50 years with a specialty in the wartime comic books era, and he relates that it was a very interesting time in Canada's history. Mackenzie King's government wanted to shore up the Canadian dollar because it was weakened because of the war. The, the Americans weren't in the war, but we were. And too much of our money was flowing for American products over the 49th parallel down south. So the Mackenzie King government, the parliament, decided to create an act of parliament called the War Exchange Conservation Act, which prohibited certain products from entering the country. And among those products were comic books. So as we went from 1940 to 1941, the comic books had disappeared off the shelves. Suddenly, kids everywhere were hoarding comics. Renowned journalist Denny Boyd wrote in 1972 that he and his friends created a trade block in their school. No one threw away comics and what they had was stockpiled so that everyone could read them and reread them. Trades happened every day and they visited secondhand bookstores to buy what they could, no matter the condition of the comic. He wrote, I can remember sitting up nights with a great dangerous needle and a ball of butcher's twine rebinding the edges of a pre-banned Flash Gordon, the comic equivalent of a priceless work on the wartime pulp market. With no American comics coming into Canada, something had to change. Kids wanted comics. And as they say, nature hates a vacuum. Seeing the absence of Batman and Superman, four companies took advantage of the situation. In March 1941, Anglo-American Publishing got in on the action. Publishing out of Toronto, Anglo-American was put together by Ted McCall in partnership with Cine News. McCall was the creator of The Men of the Mounted, an incredibly popular comic and story series that took the real, though likely embellished, stories of the RCMP and made them into something accessible for young adults. That comic strip debuted in 1933 in the Toronto Evening Telegram and was printed off and on throughout the next decade. And McCall is considered the father of the graphic adventure story in Canada, 
and a founding giant in Canadian comic book history. The first title released by Anglo-American was Robin Hood and Company. Also created by McCall, it was a tabloid-sized publication that used reprinted comic strips that had run in Canadian newspapers since 1935. Almost at the same time, on the other side of the country, Maple Leaf Publishing in Vancouver jumped on the trend and put out its first comics in March 1941 as well. Vernon Miller was the man behind the company, and he convinced magazine vendor Harry Smith to invest in Maple Leaf Publishing. Their first release, Better Comics No. 1, is considered the first true Canadian comic book. Deborah Meert Williston works at the Rare Book Library at Western University, which has a huge collection of comics, and she says there was a major effort to create these comics in an American style. Some of them tried to be um, more like American comics because there was the, an audience for that. Some of them tried to bring um, a Canadian perspective and culture um, into the publications. Um, so there's a real mix. Upon seeing the success of Maple Leaf and Anglo-American Publishing, two other companies joined in on the action. Hillborough Studios launched in August 1941 with its flagship publication, Triumph Adventure Comics. René Kalbach and his brother André founded the company. Both were artists known for their landscapes in Germany and Canada. René painted the murals on the massive ceiling of the Crystal Ballroom in the Royal York Hotel in Toronto. And joining them was Adrian Dingle, another artist. Now Dingle was the mainstay of the company and the creator of Nelvana the Northern Lights. Of all of the comic book characters created during this era, none reached the level of popularity and cultural impact as Nelvana. She was the first Canadian female superhero, and she has the distinction of debuting months before Wonder Woman. Dingle was inspired by the stories of Franz Johnston, a group of seven painter who had recently visited the Arctic. And while there, Franz Johnston had met an Inuit woman named Connie Nelvana at Coppermine Northwest Territories. He described her as an Arctic Madonna, and this sparked an idea for Adrian Dingle. Nelvana debuted in the first issue of Triumph Adventure, released in August 1941. She was a powerful Inuit mythological figure who protected the Inuit with her superpowers. Her mother was immortal, but her father was Koliak the Mighty, the King of the Northern Lights. Nelvana wore a fur-trimmed miniskirt, knee-high boots, gloves, and a headband with a cape. She had the ability to fly at the speed of light and had heat ray vision, invisibility, and telepathy. Fighting crime with her father, Koliak, and her brother, Tenero, she was eventually joined by RCMP Corporal Keen as a sidekick. Now, the fourth company to join the Canadian comic book race was Bell Features. Bell Features was launched in September 1941 under the leadership of Cy Bell. Bell had experience in the artist's world through his company, Commercial Signs of Canada. Wanting to break into the comic book market, he joined with his brother Eugene and borrowed $15,000 to start Bell Features. What would become the most famous of the four began with those two brothers, a few employees, and a lithography machine that no one really knew how to use. The first production of the company was WoW Comics, featuring Dart Daring, a character who sailed the high seas in the 1700s and was created by Edmund Legault. This first issue of WoW Comics ran over 64 pages in four colors and had a press run of 52,000 copies. Now, full-color comics were not easy to produce, and that first run wasn't great. Dart Daring appeared to be running out of his pants due to a misalignment in the printing. And after that first hiccup, 
the company quickly emerged as the most successful of the four during this time. Within a year, it was enjoying weekly sales of 100,000 copies and was able to keep up with the demand thanks to 50 freelance creators, which included several women, including Doris Slater. After eight editions, the company switched to black and white completely, and yet they saw no drop in sales. And while these four companies brought about the golden age of Canadian comics, one man deserves his due as well, the aforementioned Edmund Legault. Despite his importance, very little is known about him. He was the one, as I said, that created Dart Daring and Wiz Wallace. Around 1940, he brought those two characters to Cy Bell to convince him to publish them. Edmund saw the future, Cy did not, and he declined. Then the War Exchange Conservation Act was introduced and Cy turned to Edmund for help and launched the aforementioned Bell Features. Edmund then introduced Dixon of the Mounted, before leaving to join the Royal Canadian Artillery. And while he survived the war, he faded from history soon after. As the war raged on in February 1942, Leo Bausch, a cartoonist with Bell Features, created Johnny Canuck. Somewhat based on the fictional lumberjack that was portrayed in cartoons and literature in the late 19th century, Johnny Canuck had no superpowers but he led the fight for Canada against the Nazis. He was essentially Canada's Captain America, and like Captain America, he beat up Adolf Hitler and single-handedly won the war. A few years later, in April 1944, Maple Leaf Comics debuted Brock Windsor, a character created, written, and illustrated by John Stables. Stables had worked in the world of commercial art before venturing into comics in 1942. Now, Brock Windsor was a Winnipeg doctor and outdoorsman who could speak multiple languages. After crashing his canoe into the shores of a hidden island in the Lake of the Woods, he has to make his way back to mainland Canada. Now, during his adventures on the island, he develops increased strength, speed, and height, and the residents of the island also give him a uniform, dagger, and flash gun. He used all of these skills and items to fight crime. These characters gave children across Canada something to be inspired and delighted by at a time of so much loss, sadness, and fear, even if they were devoid of the brightness that we come to expect from comic books. These were called the Canadian Whites, after all. While the cover of the comics typically featured colour, the interior pages were almost always printed in black ink on white paper. Deborah Meert Williston from Western University says the use of the black and white was easier, cheaper, and fit in line with rationing. And I think the covers are really uh, lovely on a lot of them. A lot of effort and talent has gone into them. Um, so I think the people that were creating them, although the publishers perhaps are trying to save money in some ways, the, the people that were creating them are, are very talented people. Sadly, the golden age of Canadian comics wasn't meant to last forever. The decline started before the war ended. Hillborough Studios was the first casualty. It closed its doors in 1942 when Adrian Dingle took his artistic services, along with his flagship character Nelvana, over to Bell Features, and most of the staff joined him. Deborah Meert Williston says the three remaining companies were making good money and they started investing heavily in mechanical equipment and increase staff numbers. Information in the comics that's not 
comic material, but it's all of the extra things that are put in contests for children, um, children that are writing in and talking about themselves, um, giving prizes to a young uh, boy in Sarnia who collected the most medal for the war effort. Um, and Ivan's also talked about some um, children um, who had Japanese names who were listed as subscribers to the comics that talks a little bit more about what was happening in the country at that time. With so much success, what brought about the demise of the golden age of Canadian comics? The first supervillain to their success was the Wartime and Prices Board. Although the demand for comics was high, the three companies were only allowed 20 tons of paper per month when they needed 140 tons to print. This meant idle presses and growing debts. Then, when the war ended in 1945, trade restrictions quickly loosened. Comic books flooded in with four years' worth of back content of Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman, and Captain America. And with such a small share of the market, Canadian publishers were unable to compete. The better production values of the American companies also pushed the unique black-and-white style of the Canadian comics to the side. The publishers also attempted to break into the American market. While American publishers were just fine to send their comics into Canada, they did not like the opposite. Ivan Kokmerik says although there's little evidence of this, what is available shows that several U.S. publishing companies blocked Canadian publishers' efforts of breaking into the American market, effectively starving them out of business. The aspiration of every publisher was to continue going after the war ended, to try and compete with American comic books, so they became full-color books. Almost every company put out full-color books, and they tried to increase sales, and some companies made forays into the States. Bell actually wasn't one of those companies, and Maple Leaf wasn't one of those companies, but the one Toronto company that did was Anglo-American. It actually published some comic books in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, at a publishing company there and actually had them distributed through Fawcett because they had a relationship with Fawcett, Captain Marvel, people who put out Captain Marvel, uh, to use their characters in their comic books throughout the war. And then they followed through and got some distribution in the northern United States of their Canadian comic books in the States. So it was actually a Toronto company called Anglo-American that did that. The most famous of the characters of the golden age of Canadian comics, Nelvana, had her final issue released in 1947. Maple Leaf Publishing, which went full-color to compete with the Americans, ceased operations a year earlier in 1946, while the original company that started it all, Anglo-American Publisher, printed its last issue in 1951. By 1953, the biggest of the Canadian comic companies, Bell, closed its doors. Ivan Kokmerik said it had outlasted all the others. Bell actually wasn't one of those companies. And Maple Leaf wasn't one of those companies, but the one Toronto company that did was Anglo-American. They had actually published some comic books in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, at a publishing company there and actually had them distributed through Fawcett because they had a relationship with Fawcett, Captain Marvel, people who put out Captain Marvel, uh, to use their characters in their comic books throughout the war. And then they followed through and got some distribution in the northern United States of their Canadian comic books in the States. So it was actually a Toronto company called Anglo-American that did that. Canada didn't lose its appetite for superheroes, though. By the 1970s, 35 million comic books were bought per year in Canada, and nearly all were produced in the United States. They featured American heroes fighting American battles with little Canadian content. 
And while we can claim Wolverine and Deadpool as Canadian superheroes, something was lost with the demise of the Canadian wartime comics. Today, the comics are prized among collectors and quite hard to get your hands on. And if you happen to have some, well, I'll be happy to give them a good home and my P.O. Box address is in the show notes. And while the wartime comic book publishers are now long gone, their impact on Canadian culture has remained. Here is Fred Kennedy, comic book creator and writer. There's a lot of uh, prose that was written by Canadians for Canadians before that, but in terms of like a comic book explosion, because at that time, like this era of comic book superheroes, it was new. It was it was changing everything. You, you've got to take a look at it from the filmscape from like 20 years ago. Remember when the X-Men appeared on the big screen and then Spider-Man came out and it was this whole new audience that was experiencing superheroes that had never experienced them before. If you go back when these Canadian whites were coming out, it was like that with comics. Johnny Canuck didn't last much longer past the Second World War, but his legacy was commemorated by a stamp in 1995, and he may have inspired the creation of a new superhero named Captain Canuck in 1975. Meanwhile, Nelvana hadn't been seen in print since 1947, but she remained in the hearts and minds of her readers for many years. Nelvana Limited, named for the comic character, was founded in 1971 as an entertainment company. This animation studio, based out of Toronto, co-produced some of the best animated shows in history, including Clone High, The Fairly Odd Parents, Bob and Margaret, Inspector Gadget, Babar, and The Care Bears. In a Season 3 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, a planet is named Nelvana 3 in honor of the animation studio, and by extension, the superhero. The company is now owned by Chorus Entertainment, which runs Curious Cast, which is the network that my show is a part of. So, in a weird way, Nelvana the character had a big impact on my own life. And Nelvana's impact on Canadian comic book culture was large enough that on October 5, 1995, Canada Post issued a stamp depicting her. In 2013, a Kickstarter campaign to republish Nelvana the Northern Lights was launched, and it reached its goal in five days. A collection of the comics was released one year later, forever cementing her in the hearts of the true North and free. Here is Fred Kennedy, comic book creator and writer. Absolutely, it's much bigger. And I think that the, what's frustrating about uh, the Canadian comic scene is there's so many incredible talents that are in Canada. If you take a look at Toronto, it's just as big of a hotbed as New York or LA. The, the names of the creators in this country, and that's not just Toronto. I don't want to sound like I'm, oh, Toronto's the center of the universe. Like, we're talking coast to coast, like starting at Newfoundland, going all the way across to Vancouver. You have just got a laundry list of incredible creators. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the golden era of Canadian comics. Next week, we have an episode very close to my heart. We're talking about the Heritage Minutes. Information from Canadian Animation, Cartooning and Illustration, The Toronto Star, CGC Comics, First Comic News, Wikipedia, Kingston Week Standard, The Regina Leader Post, and The Vancouver Sun. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. 
If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.